Hello and welcome to the Houston Vineyard Podcast. We sincerely hope that this message is a blessing to you. Enjoy. There we go. So, quick background story. A bit of history, I thought, that would... uh, How maybe I'm here at the vineyard today. Back when I was a a college student in England... I was, someone told me about a church that met in a pub. And a, a pub is British speak for a cozy, comfortable bar. And uh, so I went along, and indeed this church was holding its services there on a Sunday evening, and they even had the bar open during the service. <laughs> now, I think eventually they realized that a bar in church was not such a good idea. And they moved to a school and and grew from there. But it was definitely memorable marketing. And here I am 20 years later in the vineyard today. Now, today I want to speak to you on something that is near and dear to my heart. um, Which is the practice of giving. And this is a natural follow-on, building on the foundations of Jonathan Tan's theme last week. About how we learn to surrender and the stewardship and the rights of our resources to God. And I actually asked the church if I could talk about this to you all for several reasons. One, people sense um, a degree sometimes of self-interest when pastors talk about giving. But for me to talk about this, it costs me to practice what I preach. And so I hope for some of you that will remove a barrier to receiving what I have to say this morning. There are also many misconceived notions about giving within the church, and often cultural practices are more dominant than biblical practices. We are generous, but not as much as we think we are. Many people struggle to surrender this area of their lives. Also, the potential for kingdom impact is enormous. I would like to inspire you today with what's possible. And lastly, Jesus said it would have eternal impact for us. And that makes it important. Now, for context, I do come at this topic from a place of of weakness and long consideration. I knew from an early age that I was fairly materialistic and enjoyed possessions and and the wealth that could obtain them. And as I read the Bible as a teenager and saw the difference between my desires and Jesus' words, I realized learning how to obey God in this area would be crucial to my life as a disciple. I've also had the privilege of living in three different developing countries in the world, so I've seen the full spectrum of human inequality. So, Today we are going to cover, what does the Bible say about giving? What do we actually do in real life? Why should we give? And how should we give? But first let me pray. Heavenly Father, we just invite you here today amongst our midst to open our hearts to your words, to encourage and convict us as needed, Lord, and to to move us with the great compassion that you have. In Jesus' name. 
Some key assumptions I want to frame with you first to help you understand what I say in its context. When I talk about the church, I'm talking about the American church, the big C American church, not our congregation. I don't know the specifics of our church's giving, except enough to know that you are actually more generous than the average church. Now, the focus of this discussion is going to be mainly on financial giving. Even though other forms of giving, such as our time and our knowledge, are just as important. But financial giving is often the least favorite aspect of these areas and worth the conversation. So let's begin with giving in the Old Testament and where the practice originated from. You'll all see little handouts like this with a list of Bible verses on them. And this represents some of the scripture I'm going to cover on this topic. And there's more additional here for your own reading and reference in your own time. Uh, and these are key uh, scriptures that I found very helpful, including a book recommendation at the bottom that was instrumental to me to understanding a deeper theo theology around money and possessions. So, where did the principle of a tithe come from? Well, we first see it in Abraham. Abraham has rescued his nephew Lot from kidnappers, from bandits, and he tithes a tenth of his gains, of the, the loot that he had retrieved from them, to this priest called Melchizedek, who was priest of Jerusalem at the time. And it's a very short and slightly mystical encounter, and the writer of Hebrews touches on it later in its significance. But that is our first encounter with the concept of a, a tithe. We next see it with Jacob. So in Genesis 28, it says, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. And then after that, we see the tithe really take um, shape in Moses' law. So in Leviticus 27, 30 to 34, it says, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. So we see these principles of giving God your first fruits. And this was established before the Mosaic law came and then was expanded and codified in quite some detail within Moses' law. And this 10% tithe, a tenth, mentioned in the Old Testament, has become the standard church giving guidance in much of the modern church. And it's easy to understand why. We like nice, straightforward rules. If I do this, I'm good with God, I've fulfilled my duty. But the tithe did not stop at 10%. That was just the first tithe, the Levitical tithe to the priests. Then there was a second tithe. It was called the festival tithe, let's say. And that was 10% of people's food and drink and livestock. 
And they actually use that to celebrate the various festivals that God ordains for them. And they would travel to Jerusalem and celebrate there together and share it with the Levites. So 10% for community celebration. And then there was a third tithe, the tithe for the poor. And that was 10% every three years for the poor, orphans, widows, and refugees. This averages 23% a year. And this comes from a subsistence farming community with far less wealth than we enjoy today. I bet you probably haven't heard a church telling you should be using at least 23% of your income for God's purposes. But we also shouldn't ignore that this was a different economic system established before they had kings and taxes. So the tithe was more complicated and demanding than the 10% number we usually hear. But the tithe also came with a promise. And we see that in the, the covenant that God establishes with Moses in Sinai. And two, two verses that refer to this are in Malachi 3, 8 to 12. And then this one I'll read from Proverbs 3, 9 to 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be full and your vats will be bursting with wine. God as part of his covenant with the Israelites, blesses their obedience in this area with the promise of provision for them. So, to summarize the Old Testament view, the principle of the tithe started with Abraham. It got more complex and sophisticated under the Mosaic law, and it also established several key principles for the Israelites. Primarily, that God would be Israel's provider when they surrendered their wealth to him first. Then also that the people should provide for a priestly class to oversee the teaching and rituals of God's law. And priests fulfilled a lot of functions in the early Israelite community. And thirdly, God wanted them to provide for the poor in their midst. So let's move into the New Testament. And the New Testament, we see this shift from a, a codified law with exact percentages to be given to the deeper intent behind the law. So here are some key things Jesus said that I'd like to highlight to you. So in Matthew 6, 1 to 4, Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret." And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Then Jesus says in Luke 12, 32 to 34, this is one of my favorite lines. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven 
that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And lastly, in Luke 6.38, Jesus says, Give, and it will be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You see, Jesus is concerned primarily with our heart motive. Do we do this out of love for the Lord and for others, or is it for the praise of people? Are we genuinely moved with compassion for the needy around us, or do we only pay lip service to it? Jesus spoke many times about the deceitfulness of wealth and how it can distract us from knowing and following God. He often brings it back to the point that nothing else can have lordship over our lives except God alone, and that a strong desire for other things effectively becomes idolatry. He knows how wealth and possessions distract us, both from God, but also from each other. And he promises the principle of the covenant relationship is actually still the same. God sees and rewards our generosity. But please note, this doesn't necessarily mean that you will receive financial reward back in proportion to your giving. I think Jesus has much bigger blessings in mind. So, then we get to the early church. The gospel is spreading to the Gentiles across Asia. Many are choosing to follow Jesus And Paul is wrestling with how to instruct them in following Jesus in practical ways in their own cultures. So, here are three helpful instructions he writes to the early church. And this is primarily in the the letters to the Corinthian church. So I'll start with 2 Corinthians 8 to 12. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. So nice double negative at the end there, but not according to what one does not have. And then I'll jump to 2 Corinthians 9, and I think this verse is really important for us. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then lastly, in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, Now, about the collection for the Lord's people, Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Paul, in writing to the early church, considers giving as a spiritual practice as important as the other practices. 
But notice, Paul does not recommend the application of the tithe to the early church. Nowhere in the New Testament will you find any recommendation for the church to tithe in that language. Instead, he encourages voluntary and proportionate giving in obedience and at the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. Paul desires a church who gives out of joy rather than compulsion, who want to further expand God's kingdom in their communities. He wants them to be invested in the kingdom. He also knows his audience has a huge range in potential income and freedoms. He's writing to slaves and Roman nobility. The the early church is enormously varied. And the Roman Empire at that time produced inequality levels that are no less than we see today, except the proportion of people who lived in poverty was much higher. So, Paul is sensitive in laying out recommendations to a wide range of people and cultures. And he summarizes new covenant giving on these principles. It should be regular. It should be in proportion to our income. A substantial proportion of that should go to our local church. And it should also be sacrificial. We will miss out on things because of our giving. And it should be given gladly, under no sense of obligation, an offering of love and thankfulness to the Lord who richly provides for all. And he reinforces the Old Testament and Jesus' promise that God is a rich provider who blesses us in our obedience and richly provides for us as we have need and beyond what we expect. So in 2 Corinthians 9, he says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So, that's some of what scripture says about giving. So, what do we actually do in real life today? Well, the statistics about our giving as Christians can be sober reading. We're not as generous as we think we are. And this is in the most charitable country in the world. America is actually the most charitable country in the world in per capita giving. These figures are even lower elsewhere in the world. So, according to non-profit source, only 5% of church members give regularly. That rises to 13% among evangelicals. And householders, households that make more than $75,000 a year are the least charitable proportionately. Nationwide today, Christians give around 2.5% of their income. And for comparison, during the Great Depression, that number was 3.3%. So American Christians were 50% more generous during the Great Depression than they are today. And only 2.7% of people, religious or non-religious, give away as much as 10% of their income. So 
Let us come back to that statistic that lower income people are often more generous than middle and upper income people. Only once you get to the very rich, the top 0.1%, do you see larger proportions of giving. Essentially, as humans, we don't become naturally generous with our money until we have more than we can possibly spend on ourselves. And even then, not always, eh? Another way that lower income people are generous is with their time. You've all heard the expression, time equals money. And for many in this church, you can be extraordinarily generous with your time. And I want to recognize that. And yet, even at these levels, the impact of the church adds up. And because the American church is the wealthiest church in the world by orders of magnitude, it has a disproportionate impact on the global church. So U.S. Christians donate $50 billion a year to churches and charities. And America is still the most generous country in the world in giving. So I want to do a, a short thought experiment with you. Let's imagine what if all regular churchgoers gave approximately 10% of their income, since it's a nice round number. Well, churches and charities would have another $150 billion every year in just the United States. So what could you do with $150 billion? Well, you could send 2.5 million American missionaries, which is six times the current number of missionaries. You could send 10 to 20 million local missionaries within their nations. So you can imagine how quickly we would reach all unreached people groups. You could end acute world hunger. The UN Food Program estimates it's $45 billion a year to feed the most uh, malnourished people in the world. Or you could freely educate 20% of America's children, 10 million kids. And that's on top of everything we already do within the church. No change to our current ministry. Now, I'm not saying we should do that. Or even that we could do that. Money can't fix everything. But it reminds me of the verse that Jesus said. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And I feel like that scripture has come true. God has already given us all the resources to accomplish incredible things. If we have the unity and the generosity to do it. He's already given it to us. But I think it's also important to address what giving does not accomplish. As much as the impact is huge. And the primary one is that it does not make God like you. God does not need our money. He, it says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything is his. His love for us and affection towards us is not based on our own generosity, but on Christ's generosity towards us. It is very hard for us not to think that we are earning brownie points each time we are generous to others. But as John Tan highlighted to us last week, our money is not our own. So we think we are being generous with our money, but in reality, we are just sharing what God has given us. We are being generous with his resources 
not our own. And therefore, he ultimately gets the glory. And that is the way it should be. Giving also has extraordinary effects, right? It brings justice, balance, and equity to a community. It disarms the enemy who loves to destroy through poverty. It puts us on a more equal footing with each other. It ties us together tightly in relationship and shows us how much we are dependent on each other. And it is essential to facilitating the great commission we have to make disciples and teach them about Jesus. Our God is a very practical God. He understands economics a lot better than we do. So, how much should we give? When it comes to money, I think C.S. Lewis has a great way of capturing the dilemma here. We like clear rules, but the truth is wealth and finances is very relative. It varies enormously between countries, cultures, and families. And so we must discern what generous giving is through a thoughtful reflection and the leading of the Holy Spirit. I have found giving to be very much like a muscle. It grows quickly when exercised, and the muscle memory is retained. When you train yourself to be generous in specific ways, these habits become a part of your life. So, yep, you can see it up there. So, I'll read this out. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common amongst those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we would like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. And I would like to pair that statement back with the verse in 2 Corinthians. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is the tension we hold as disciples. Our giving is sacrificial and cheerful. C.S. Lewis did this by giving away all his book royalties that he earned to a Christian charitable trust that he appointed others to oversee. And he lived on his professor's salary. And you can imagine books like the Chronicles of Narnia certainly would have made substantial royalties over time, right? Um, But another example I'd like to give you is from a local church in Houston. So there was a life group at this church, and it was made up of college kids. And one of the members of that life group had her car die on her, and it was beyond economical repair. When the life group heard this, they secretly clubbed their money together and bought the girl a used car, which was essential for her to get to work and surprised her with it. And this is college students, right? Uh, And there are many stories that I don't have time to tell about generosity in this church. Many of you here are very generous behind the scenes, following Jesus' advice to keep your giving secret for his recognition alone. Because of that, I'm hesitant to talk too much about personal practices. 
but examples can be helpful for the church. And ultimately, I have come to believe in the concept of progressive giving. That is, the more you receive, the more you give as a percentage of what you receive. And that is the practice I have adopted in my own life. Ultimately, I hope many of us here can be as generous as the early Israelites were, and even more so. And I can personally testify that God has always faithfully provided for me in all kinds of surprising ways in this journey. And that Jesus' statement that the measure you use will be measured back to you has been a direct experience in my own life. I'd like to invite the worship team to come back up. Now, some of you may have been burdened by the scale of the disaster in Turkey this week, like I have. We have a local vineyard church we're in partnership with there and long historical links with Turkey. Uh, if you would like to help, I can recommend a local agent, relief agency that's run by believers there. So I'll give out a shout out to my friend Stephen Huey, who knows them, uh, and they're called First Hope. Reach out to Stephen uh, or look on his Facebook page. Come and ask me afterwards for the name or contact. Perhaps they're also recommended by the Sugarland Vineyard as the preferred source for donations. So perhaps we can add it in a web vine this week. We'll see. Uh, we'll find a way to share that. Um, but that's, that's touched my heart, as Jack, as Jack mentioned earlier. Now, it's February, and you're all about to do your taxes. Fun, fun. This is a great opportunity to look at how you spend your money and how much you have given in the last year and to whom. A practice I have done in the past is to sum up all the giving we did in a year and remind my wife and I what it accomplished and take joy in it to be a cheerful giver. You can do this with both monetary giving and where you spend your time and other resources. It's also an opportunity to set targets for the year ahead and where you want to invest in the kingdom. Does your giving actually match what you feel the Lord is calling you to impact? I would encourage all of us to set targets for ourselves in what we will give each year in line with Paul's advice to the church. That means in proportion to our income, enough that it stretches us and that we are sacrificing something and an amount we can give cheerfully to say, Lord, it is my joy to see you build your kingdom and I trust you when you say this matters in eternity. The truth is, unless we set ourselves clear targets of how generous we want to be, we are unlikely to become meaningfully generous. We do not become generous by accident or chance. We become generous through surrender and intentional practice. Father, I pray that as we reflect on your great generosity towards us, how you have held nothing back from us, including your beloved son, you would speak to us about our desire, your desires for your kingdom and where we can share in that work, Lord, and join with you. Make our hearts sensitive and compassionate to the needs around us. Give us divine wisdom in how we share your resources and direct us in how we use them. Help us forge relationship with each other across economic classes and societal groupings. And let us be known for our love for you.